Hello and welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, and art to talk each week about innovations and progress in the field of social interest design. We're very excited this morning as this is our inaugural broadcast. I'm your co-host, Eric Kessel, and I'm here with my co-host, Emiliano Gandolfi. And each week, we're going to introduce you to some of the most inspirational voices that we've encountered in our respective careers. Over the next 12 months, we're going to string together a diverse set of designers from all over the world who are working at all scales, from product design to urban planning, who each in their own way are trying to draw out the social possibilities of their respective fields and use their professional skills to address pressing social problems. Each month, we'll initiate a question, which we'll then ask our guests to weigh in on through the lens of their own practice. The field of social design has seen a resurgence in recent years and continues to garner more and more widespread attention. Both Emiliano and I have been doing this for a while, and in contemplating this podcast, we asked ourselves what the big daunting questions might be for the field as a whole over the next 10 years. We then assembled dozens of our favorite designers to help show us the way. We're inaugurating this broadcast on several levels. It is, of course, our very first podcast, and we're very excited about that, and Emiliano will introduce our guests in a second, but it's also the first episode of a month-long inquiry, Should Designers Be Outlaws? Many of our favorite practices flirt with the informal, the illegal, and the revolutionary, and we wanted to hear from them about how they navigate these tricky waters. In a world where the formal constructs of zoning and building often disenfranchise and marginalize the poor, how do designers draw a line between what is right, what is legal, and what is just? Our first two guests have a lot to say. Emiliano? So, well, thank you, Eric. Uh, we're here, uh, not only the two of us, but we have two very distinguished guests today. We have a Teddy Cruz and a Fona Foreman from a studio, Teddy Cruz and Foreman. Teddy's been, besides being a very good friend, uh, he's been, I think, one of the most uh, charismatic and uh, probably followed practitioners over the social design movement. So I think that interviewing him uh, as a the first episodes of our series is actually a, a, a it's setting somehow an initial uh, foundational stone on how we can see the practice and how we can inspire different forms of making cities in the future. Teddy Cruz is a professor of public culture and urbanism at the Visual Arts Department at the University of California, San Diego. He's the director of the Center for Urban Ecologies, and he's also co-directing the USCSD cross-border initiative together with FONA. Uh, Fona is not a designer, she's a political theorist. She's also uh, the founding director of the UCSD Center for Global Justice. And she's been bringing a completely new uh, side to the practice of Teddy, bringing a much better and more um, inserted perspective on political theory and how actually design can become policies. Today, uh, with Teddy and, and Fona, we will be actually addressing a specific question, as we're doing every month. That is, should designers be outlaws? And we decided uh, to ask Fona and uh, Teddy the specific question, not because we think they're outlaws, but because we think that their practice is actually showing how design is in- influential in the current system of things, and how, in fact, their way of seeing design, architecture, and planning is in fact uh, somehow uh, being outlawed. So it's being beyond the rule and outside of the rules. So of course, this brings the discussion into a fundamental aspect, that is, how do we change the rules to make design more influential and to make communities more influential in how cities are made? 
You recently came out from a, a, an experience in also in policymaking that I think could be a way to bring together a lot of the experiences between uh, design and political theory that the two of you have been uh, condensing and thinking about. What were the main ambitions in uh, your project for San Diego? Well, it really gets to the question of, you know, whether one is an outlaw or not. We obviously were frustrated with the planning culture in the city of San Diego, which had been a largely reactive kind of endeavor. We were also frustrated that the municipality wasn't engaging in any kind of aspirational planning or thinking with the municipality of Tijuana. Together, this region is the largest binational metropolitan region in the world, and San Diego and Tijuana have a history of completely ignoring one another. So our aspiration in engaging the municipality was to try to engage the rule makers, the lawmakers. So yes, working outside the law to push conventions and the rules as they are, but working alongside with the lawmakers to push hard against policy from the inside. So it's sort of a double strategy, understanding that to make any progress whatsoever in a city, you have to engage those with power and those who have the capacity to scale up what you find to be important. So we're always working on two scales simultaneously. We're working at the grassroots, at the bottom up, engaging amazing creative intelligence in communities that's often neglected by rule makers and policy makers, but also at the same time engaging the top down who often don't even understand what they're missing. So we've always seen ourselves as playing a mediating role between these two robust sources of knowledge and capacity and bringing them together because they often speak in languages that are completely uh, foreign to one another. So we mm -hmm. were summoned by the mayor of San Diego several years ago after he was elected to set up a unit in his office tasked with playing this very sort of role. He was a very progressive figure and gave us a lot of space and a budget to do something that was completely foreign to many American cities. We were actually modeling ourselves after examples of municipalities in Latin America, primarily that were rethinking municipal protocols and bureaucracy by gathering academics as well as designers and community-based voices inside municipal planning to actually push the boundaries of you know, civic imagination. Yes, I, mean, I think that Fona already mentioned the most foundational desire here, which is really how does one reorganizes the protocols of a practice, the procedures by which we can intervene, not only in one sector, but really across sectors. And so, yes, this desire in our practice to intervene in the interface between the top down and the bottom up is really the foundation of that project, at least that project that you opened up, Emiliano, about our experience inside the municipality of San Diego. And I think that suggests also not only a political leadership for a moment, the idea that this mayor who had the, for a moment, the kind of, if I can call it, I, I hope it doesn't sound pretentious, but they had the intelligence to summon uh, our research in a way that had been operating within not only our practice, but at the university. Because what he was interested as a 
political figure was to re-engage a very different modality of urban development that much of the projects that were built in San Diego or for that matter any American city really were concentrated in the size of predictable profit or economic development. The downtowns across the United States that were benefiting from taxation and development logics that really benefited only certain regions of the city, tax increment laws that were really making downtowns as wealthy bubbles, let's say, in the context of the city. This mayor wanted to reorient his vision to the communities, to the many marginalized neighborhoods that hadn't been part of that conversation. So he contacted us because he understood that we had been researching not only those uh, communities, but had been engaging projects of intervention within those communities and across the border to redefine the terms in the context of uh, housing affordability, new forms of community engagement, and public space. And so he literally invited us to really enter uh, government uh, with him to set up a laboratory inside his office. So we have been interested primarily in being the interlocutors, the translators of those invisible urban dynamics primarily prompted by immigrant communities, because we found those to be the DNA for reimagining land use and new categories of zoning. Some of the things that you both have mentioned in terms of small-scale interventions and, you know, the wisdom that arises out of informality and the way people structure their environments struck me as a sort of vox populi, you know, a sort of... um, intuition about the way that the built environment has been made. And of course, your process is about how that wisdom becomes part of the formal institutions. And there's no doubting the success of the Latin American model. The uptake has seemed less in a North American model. Is that a problem with the way that people relate to their government or the way that public sees design or both? Yes, that's a fundamental question. I think on one hand, it's really the absence of political leadership. And primarily in the United States, where in a way the the, the future of cities has been in the hands of private developers, where the paradigms of urban transformation have been driven primarily by the hegemony of a kind of neoliberal politics and economics of development. By that I mean, obviously, a project that has benefited privatization, you know, marginalization and exclusion. So the polarity or the polarization of wealth and poverty everywhere in the world is reproduced primarily in in many of our cities across the United States. And this has engendered a hugely, not only greedy version of capitalism, of entrepreneurship that has been only focused on the large scale corporate project. And it has marginalized really many of those uh, environments obviously the the impoverished, underrepresented communities that have not been part of the conversation, that have not participated in the rethinking of urban policy. So it has created a xenophobic, anti-public, anti-taxes, anti-infrastructure, anti-public infrastructure, anti-government even agenda. No wonder the power of governance has been diminished. If there is something tragic to witness in the last years is how the extreme left and the extreme right have coincided in their disbelief of government. So when Fona and I have been working on the bottom up and the kind of translation of those urban dynamics, which we find to be hugely fruitful 
in imagining the future of the city, we are interested as well on this institutional project because we have been uh, in hugely inspired by Latin American cities, as what I was saying, where we found that a progressive government exists, in fact, that it has not died, that political leadership is important today from the top down, but that that top down project now has to transform into an inclusive project of the bottom up into a more open and collaborative form of the political. So unfortunately in the United States, as we've been seeing recently, not only in the polarization of wealth and poverty, the huge uh, gap between uh, across incomes and the concentration of economic and political power, I think that uh, it has begun to also produce hugely protectionist and xenophobic and anti-immigration policies which are hugely worrisome. So I think that it is at that moment when all of us as designers would have to also enter into the debate and begin to expand our capabilities. So we are not only intervening physically, but we are also intervening in transforming hearts and minds, transforming into shifting public opinion to understand that the future of the city obviously not only depends on the survival on the individual, but really that survival is, is depends on the health of, of the community and the collective. So it's really a, a set of priorities and attitudes that need to, to transform. Uh, and, and that's, I think, what we have to open up new spaces of operation as, as practitioners. Teddy, Fana, I think one of the reasons that uh, Emiliano and I wanted you as our, our first guest is because of this intersection between politics, design, urbanity, and how it's confronting designers of all stripes. We're 40 years into the neoliberal experiment, and the divisions between design and politics seem to have completely eroded. But we've got to take a quick break. Um, we'll be right back with more Social Design Insights with Teddy Cruz and Fana Foreman. Thank you for listening to Social Design Insights. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation and the Curry Stone Design Prize. Each week, we strive to bring you the voices of leading practitioners of socially-minded design from all fields. For 10 years, the Curry Stone Design Prize has been seeking, finding, and celebrating emerging practices in socially-minded design. For further information on this episode, the show, or social design itself, please visit our website at currystonedesignprize.com on the website, you'll find all sorts of fun stuff. You can find documentary videos and all of the past winners of the Curry Stone Design Prize going back for 10 years. You can also find narratives on all Curry Stone Design Prize winners and Social Design Circle members. On the website, there's multiple galleries of photos of our winner's work for your use, as well as links for further research. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. Uh, before the break, we were talking with Teddy Cruz and Fano Foreman about how designers debate and how they enter the conversation about the future of cities rather than just being merely tools for neoliberal development. You both mentioned Medellin, and it seems to be the best example at our collective fingertips about Teddy's idea of changing hearts and minds and how the transformation of public space begins with the changing of the public mind. Emiliano, it seems like that's the first step, no? I think this is a fundamental step, and I think that the Curry Stone Design Prize recognized Sergio Fajardo and Alejandro Chaverri in 2009 exactly for their strategy on the city of Medellin. And I think that there they showed in a very interesting way how the forces of government and of uh, grassroots can actually come together in a common imagination 
and in a transformative one on how actually uh, citizenship can reformulate uh, a, a balance between uh, um, forces and possibly also diminish social injustice in cities. I think that there they had a, a very luxurious possibility that was also to have a strong power and income in terms of government coming from public facilities that actually were like EPS that were investing in specific neighborhoods. What was your vision in San Diego? I mean, how would you see that design could actually empower these communities? That's fantastic. Let me just respond quickly to what you said about Medellin. I mean, obviously, you know, people are looking to Medellin as a as a font of wisdom right now that, you know, all you have to do is look at what they've done and emulate it and you can just, you know, transport the lessons somewhere else. And one thing that Teddy and I have been really committed to is trying to understand the process of how Medellin was able to do what it did learning from the process. And that process will unfold differently in different contexts. Obviously, we don't have um, the resources that Medellin did to enact as quickly as it did the kind of interventions uh, that it did. But we were excited in San Diego that we, for the first time in two decades, had a mayor who was willing to redirect his attention from downtown development and suburban development toward marginalized neighborhoods and Tijuana, uh, south of the border. That was entirely new terrain. And what it did in our city is it energized community-based nonprofits throughout the city in a way that they hadn't been energized before. And the mayor was giving a space in the city to bring that intelligence and to bring that voice into his vision. So, you know, we obviously understood that our our context uh, had many constraints. It's a very conservative city. Every stripe of conservatism imaginable thrives in this part of the world. But for us, it was an opening. We knew that, like in any city, the kind of aspiration that we had was very closely tied to a particular administration and that administrations come and go. And indeed, our mayor (laughs) went very quickly and you know, it left a lot of these aspirations kind of in a very precarious time. Let me just open up a a topic here. I think that is important. In terms of our practice, we've been interested, again, in being translators of the hidden creative intelligence found in many of these informal bottom-up urban dynamics. It's interesting to imagine uh, that probably that's one of the most critical size of intervention today, potentially, what we call a crisis of knowledge transference. As knowledge has been siloed and fragmented, more than ever today, we need to engage the translation of knowledge, not only from the bottom up to the top down, but also from the top down to the bottom up in in a circulation of knowledges and resources, I think, that could open up new, new paradigms in public space, in housing, and many of the issues that interest us. Now, that also implies that more and more, I think, because history wasn't really invented five years ago or five minutes ago, I mean, that we as designers would have to also enter into what we have called a kind of facilitation of institutional memory. You know, who are the interlocutors of institutional memory? Because not only Medellin, obviously, is an exemplary moment in the history of urbanization, but we also in the United States, we had a period of decades driven 
by incredible public thinking. And we are talking that the New Deal, uh, which represented decades of synergy across institutions, universities, civic philanthropy, government, communities, to reimagine infrastructure, to reimagine the role of arts and culture in energizing economies and so on. And so on. Obviously, still affected by a lot of injustices and discrimination and segregation, but nevertheless, driven by a public imagination. Uh, so where is all that thinking? Where is all that institutional memory? Who are the interlocutors of that memory to recuperate maybe not its entirety? Because I doubt that we will have an FDR anytime you know, uh, soon. But while that top-down public project might not be feasible or imaginable today, there might be pieces, there might be traces, there might be elements that can be rescued. So when we uh, went to Medellin to collaborate with Alejandro Echeverri, in fact, and Sergio Fajardo in a project that Fona and I ended up calling the Medellin Diagram, which really was interested in visualizing many of those, again, political and civic processes that made the transformation of Medellin possible. As many of the magazines and journals and awards were given to these projects because of their architecture or their physical interventions, not very many people were really talking about the complexity of those processes that enabled institutions not only to transform themselves, but to produce a new form of knowledge transference between the bottom up to the top down and back. So I think that's a, an important uh, element, I think, to, to bring up because what we want to transfer from Medellin or translate, again, uh, are some of the most important concepts that we think and where we believe can be reproducible. And, and just to end with this comment, when we were inside the Civic Innovation Lab or the Incubator for Civic Imagination, uh, one of the major projects really not only wanted to learn from Medellin, in, in that case is one first site of intervention is bureaucracy itself you know, to intervene in the opacity and Byzantine labyrinthine inefficient bureaucracy of our institutions to open it, open that bureaucracy up uh, and making it more transparent and inclusive. But it was really to drive a new project of public space. And I think if there is one major, among many uh, concepts that we learned from Medellin and, and which we want to translate more and more and obviously execute and intervene with, is the idea that public space educates. And, and this it, it might sound commonsensical or maybe naive, but in the United States, again, driven by what has become primarily a project of beautification, supported by the creative class movements or new urbanism and so on, which is only about uh, style, about aesthetics, about thinking that uh, the revitalization of space can just be through beautification, which ultimately, uh, obviously, always ends up in gentrification. Uh, the Medellin model is incredible because it suggests that it's not enough to design spaces physically to make beautiful places, but that we need to also design the systems of management, the systems uh, of cultural programming that can be producing collaboration with communities, and why not also to say the economic systems that can assure sustainability uh, of those spaces in the long term. So that's what uh, we were trying to primarily do in the municipality of San Diego is to drive a new project of public space in marginalized communities as a spaces of education where you know, the city could begin to be imagining collaboratively 
between government and communities. Thank you, Teddy. That's a very powerful future to imagine for public space, this idea that space itself can educate rather than just being an object of display, something to be commodified and made to look pretty. I know Emiliano and I have a million follow-up questions, but unfortunately we've run out of time for this episode. Teddy and Fano will be joining us for part two of this interview to get further insights on the issue of should designers be outlaws? In part two, we're going to continue our discussion of informality and how ideas move from the top to the bottom and back again. So click back to the website for part two of this interview. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Emiliano Gandolfi. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Design Prize and the Curry Stone Foundation. For more information on the work of Estudio Cruz Foreman, please visit our website at currystonedesignprize.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the latest news on social design. We'll be right back.